Hey listeners, welcome to Talk With Me. This is Marsha Epstein and I am sitting around the dining room table in Lawrence, Kansas on a beautiful spring day. In fact, it is, well, not quite spring, but almost March 9th of 2018. I must give a shout out to Ms. Annette Hope. Billings, who provided such a beautiful, fun, touching, laughter, tears reading last night from her newest book, Just Shy of Stars. Um, The reading was at the Raven Bookstore here in Lawrence. The book is from Spartan Press out of Kansas City. The book is dedicated to poet Jessica Elise, a dear friend, warrior woman, poet, inspiration, who died from cancer almost a year ago, with a short time, less than six months from awareness to end of life. But she lived her life fully every moment, including after the diagnosis. Travels to beaches, parties with friends, poetry performance. What do you know about Jessica Elise? So all my love to Jessica Elise, to her partner, Macy Webb, and to Ms. Annette Hope Billings, an amazing person and poet who I'm proud to call friend and am just so full of love from that event last night. That's what Talk With Me is about, these amazing artists who do things who are people who change lives, who enhance lives, who inspire action, whether it's activism, love, you name it. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that love is part of activism. That'll be another conversation. Today, I am very excited to get to meet with you. Some of you may know this person and some of you like me may not have really known this person before. I'm very excited to to meet another poem from the wonderful Kansas City poetry community. And so I want to welcome M.G. Salazar to my show. Hey, M.G. Hey, how are you, Marsha? Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really good, and I'm really, really excited to talk with you. You and I got to have a little bit of conversation before we started, and now it's like, there's so many things to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we can get hopefully get through as many as we can. Yeah. And so I, I want to give a shout out to, to people who kind of were part of connecting with you for different in different ways. Jeanette Osborne and Samantha Slupsky and Uptown Arts Bar and the wonderful Maria Bustas Boyd from Artspeak Radio on KKFI. So those people, little things that they posted, events that they host, things that they're doing are part of how I recognized your name and said, hey, I need to meet this person. So I want to acknowledge that. So please tell us a little bit about you. I always like to start with with a little bit of the poet, the writer, the artist of whatever art, um, introducing themselves, telling us a little bit, and then we'll go into that conversation that goes wherever it needs to, wants to, and some of your poetry. Absolutely. Um, Well, I was born actually in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, My father used to teach at the Brooks Institute of Photography. Um, And then we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where my family has lived in New Mexico, uh, the native side, obviously, for thousands of years, and um, the European side uh, for about 500 years. So, um, when we moved to Kansas City, I was uh, about a month from turning seven. My dad got a job at Hallmark Cards, and so we came out here. Um, and it was a complete culture shock to me. Um, it was weird being the only brown person in the room, and the kids made fun of me because I had an accent. And uh, I used to watch the news every night to imitate how the newscasters spoke because my parents told me, well, you know, if you want to know how local people speak, watch the news. And um, Mm -hmm. now I know that I actually was just learning the newscaster accent, (laughs) but um, it definitely uh, made it easier for me to kind of try to fit in uh, with the other kids. But it was a, it was a very, very difficult transition for me. And I was not used to not being around family and uh, the food was different here. And obviously the weather 
here is very, very different from New Mexico. <laughs> um, I still have not gotten used to it. Um, but that was, uh, that's pretty much my, my geographical, uh, map. Uh, and then, um, I went to college at UMKC and majored in political science. I, uh, minored in Spanish and spent, uh, a month in, uh, Argentina and Buenos Aires, uh, where I learned to speak Spanish. So now I get made fun of for my Argentine accent <laughs> when I speak yeah. Spanish. Okay. Um, Right. And I, I wrote my thesis on uh, the occupied and recuperated factories of Argentina. Um, so I got to spend a lot of time down there with uh, people who had overtaken their workplaces from their bosses and were making them into um, profitable companies on their own. Uh-huh. So that was a, that was an amazing experience. Um, and then uh, I, I started writing Ever since I can remember, uh, I, I sort of dabbled in poetry in high school. I had a poem published. Um, and then I, I worked at a, an art job. Uh, it was called Studio 150, and it was a, a city program that they had for recent high school graduates uh, to create art and be paid hourly. Um, and my boss at that job was uh, the infamous Jose Faust. <laughs> oh, I love Jose. Uh, every, yeah, Jose is uh, one of the best people that anyone can ever hope to meet. And so he um, he really encouraged me. He got after me and was like, you need to come to the Latino Writers Collective. You need to start writing poetry again. You know, you need to do this, do that. And he finally badgered me to the point that I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to write poetry. I'll come to the Latino Writers Collective, <laughs> but I'm not editing any of it. And he was like, I can deal with that. So mm-hmm. we uh, we went with that arrangement for a while. And then um, I became an alcoholic um, and was a, a very heavy drinker for several years. And uh, I stopped writing and stopped doing art and kind of just existed to work and fall asleep drunk every night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was one of those really sad, lonely drinkers that drinks at home out of the bottle with no chaser. Uh, so it was, uh, not the best situation. I actually ended up getting liver cirrhosis from it, um, at the age of 27, which was, uh, basically when I went to the hospital, they told me to call someone to come and pick up my body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so somehow out of the, uh, 15% chance that I had to survive that I did. Um, and I'm obviously still alive to this day, five years later. So I'm very very grateful for for this extra time and um it was during my recovery that uh I went to an outpatient rehab and they were like well you know what did you do before your disease um progressed to the level that it you know you hit rock bottom and I was like well I'm a writer and they were like well that's what you need to do as part of your therapy so it was my job to write and so I started writing poetry again um and I started attending an open mic night at the Uptown Arts Bar right. uh, once a month. And so um, I had just quit a terrible restaurant job and was kind of like, what do I do now? And on Facebook, I saw that they had an opening for a bartender two days a week. And so I went into the Uptown Arts Bar and met, met Jeanette Powers at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, we immediately fell in love with each other. And it actually turns out we have the same birthday. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, so that was sort of uh, how I fell into that. And then from there, uh, everything else has developed, uh, including my uh, first book and my second book, and uh, now going on to my third. So That's impressive. That's quite a journey. Thank you. Yeah, it, yeah. it's uh, not been the easiest, but, you know, as long as you can wake up in the morning, it's worth it. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm serious when you say that, you know, I mean, we need more than just that we can wake up to keep life being worth living. Yeah. Well, there's a, definitely a reason to wake up. And if you, yeah. Yeah. if you need a reason, there's always reasons out there. You just need to find them. Yeah. And I'm thinking that you had to work hard to find them to change in the ways that you did. That certainly the health scare, the physical health scare is something, but, but it takes a lot to to say, okay, I'm going to be committed to healing myself. And you Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's an ongoing journey. It's not something that you're like, okay, I'm healed, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's going to be setbacks. And mm-hmm. I really love that meme on the internet that's like, you know, the road to 
the healing is not a straight line. It's a very loopy one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so important. I, I don't know whether you realize this, but the, my, my serious side kicks in because um, my, my work is I'm a mental health social worker and much of the work that I do is with helping people reduce suicide risk, which to me means helping people get to the point where life is really worth living again. And also helping people who have suicide um, as what ended loved ones' lives. And then, and then I think, I guess it was because of that work of, with suicide risk that I also started doing work with, with in particular youth who are trans and gender nonconforming. Life is so hard. You know, when, when you talked about the treatment that you had moving to this new area, people looking at you and so differently because your skin is brown and your accent is different. You know what? What I, you know, I know is that any time that we're treated in mean ways, you know, and sometimes dangerous ways, which to me are very different um, extremes. Like I don't want to, I don't want to. Mean is bad, and sometimes it's life threatening, and sometimes it's life ending. But uh, wow, I'm so serious. Sorry, um, but people, of course, have trouble saying, you know, what why would I want to stick around for this, you know? And so absolutely, it's, it's always really important to me when I start on these monologues that, <laughs> 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 that it's important to me to say, you know, people have heard, well, there are more suicide among, uh, attempts among kids who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans. And then to remind people that the reason that might happen is because mistreatment can lead us to believe that we're not worth sticking around, you know? It's not because we're flawed because of our gender or our sexual orientation. It's because of the way we are treated and the messages in this culture of whatever American culture is, many cultures, but still. Anyway, 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 anyway. sometimes <laughs> life is hard. Sometimes we are able to work through that. Sometimes we connect with the right people. And when you when you mentioned Jeanette and the arts bar, I realized that I think I said Jeanette Osborne, which is really bizarre, because I did mean Jeanette Powers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so you are a writer and I wanna to I always like to know a little bit about the beginning of that. You mentioned that your dad was a photography professor early on. Um and I, when I heard that, I thought, well, there, there, it sounds like there was art going on around you, but do you remember when words became important for you in terms of reading and then writing poetry? Um, words were always really important to me. I had a, um, a next door neighbor that when we lived in Santa Barbara, she cultivated a garden for our apartment complex. And so she used to take me down every day and point at the flowers and say flower and uh that actually ended up being my first word was flower um cool. yeah um and then it was ball and then you know mom and dad i got the important things out of the way flowers and balls um <laughs> <laughs> and um when i uh my dad babysat me a lot because my mom worked at at a bank and uh so I would be hanging out at the studio, but he would need to keep me out of the way. So, you know, I, he would set me up with a, you know, a bunch of markers and paints and pens and paper and, you know, just tell me not to get dirty and then kind of set me loose. So mm -hmm. from there, I, you know, was, you know, copying everything that I saw. My parents read to me every night. Um, we had a, my best friend at the time, his father was from Greece. So he actually read us books in Greek. And apparently I was able to converse in Greek as a very, very small child. I have no <laughs> recollection of any of this whatsoever. But um, I, he gave us a book that was in Greek when we moved. And I remember being curious because my parents couldn't read it to me. Because uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> obviously they, they did not know how to read Greek. So uh -huh. um, I wrote my first story when I was in first grade. 
Um, it was three pages long, and it was about going to Disneyland to capture ghosts. Um, <laughs> excuse me. And uh, it was, uh, they made a big deal about it because I guess first graders don't really write stories with beginnings and middles and ends. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, that was kind of at the point that my parents recognized, like, you know, she has a talent as a writer. Um, and so they they encouraged that definitely. Like, I when I moved here, I basically had no friends for many years. So I, I read voraciously uh, anything I could get my hands on. Um, I became really interested uh, at a really young age in the Holocaust and read pretty wow. much every book that the library had on the Holocaust. Um, and that really, really shaped me as a, as a human being and as a, the, the morals and ethics that I hold dear to myself. Um, uh-huh. And so my parents were always very encouraging. We went to the library. Um, they would take me to the bookstore. Um, we would go to the library a lot more often because they found when they took me to the bookstore, I'd read the books before we got home. So <laughs> it was a little more economical to take me to the library. Yeah. Um, but that was, uh, and then writing was just always something I did. I always, I have uh, diaries left over from <laughs> very early on and, and journals. And it's just something that was always uh, a part of me, I guess. Uh-huh. And when did that turn into poetry? Um, that actually started with uh, my high school uh, English teacher. Her name was Joyce Castra. And I had always fancied myself as a novel writer Mm -hmm. um so I was going to write the next great American novel whatever that means um (laughs) and so she uh as a an assignment forced us to write poetry and uh I found that it was it came easily to me and uh other people seemed to like it so Mm -hmm. um at her encouragement I entered this contest which is where I had my first poem published but the funny part about that was is they had a 21 line limit on the poem that you could submit. And I um, thought that was rather fascist. So I wrote a 21 line poem saying so, and <laughs> it ended up winning. So that was, uh, awesome. I, yeah, I, I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I kind of felt bad about that. I was like, I really did not think they were going to pick that one. But they did. <laughs> It's good that they were open to that instead of just going, this kid, nah. Right, like, come on, (laughs) stop being a brat. But, uh, Uh no, they definitely published my my protest poem against their contest. Uh Uh-huh. So, so, yeah. um, Yeah, that's how it all got started, I guess. And then, really, I I blame Jose Fausto for my entire poetry career because without (laughs) his badgering, I never would have pursued it as an actual thing. I would have continued to uh, fancy myself a novel writer and, uh, you know, uh, and probably never finished anything, <laughs> but, uh, uh-huh. but would still claim so until I died, right? Yeah. And for people who don't know Jose Faust, I always say, if you're in the Kansas City area, look for something where he is reading, look for his murals, look for him online and get a sense of some of the art this person creates. But if you get a chance to be in the room with him, do that. <laughs> right, absolutely. I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, yeah. And Jose is another one of those people who I think about, you know, when we when he we were talking, he he worked with kids. He was he was somebody who made a point of working with the community center, volunteering with a community center that primarily serves the Hispanic community and being this awesome role model, mentor, support person for youth. It's like, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. And then, you know, I'm not saying that you were a little kid, but but in a similar way, he, he really was a great person in your life to help you. Absolutely. Great. And shout out to those treatment people who said, you need to get back to writing. That's something you do. That's important for you to do. That's, that's Yeah, that was... Absolutely. That was a rediscover uh, rehab services here in Kansas City. And anyone who's struggling, they have many levels of rehab that you can go to. And I highly, highly suggest uh, giving them a call. That's cool. It's not uncommon to me to to meet 
writers who either are struggling or have struggled with alcohol or other substances. Um, and, and honestly, it's the personal side that, that I've heard a lot of people talk about how important their art is to them. That's really what drew me to, to specialize in doing podcasts with artists because there's such an important thing that happens both with the creation and the sharing of art. It's really right. breaking down isolation and also motivating in a lot of important ways. Again, whether it's activism in a, in a more global way or personally, it's, it's so exciting. Yeah, I see art as um, art and alcohol both as self-medication. Um, so uh-huh. it's, you know, and as a person, you know, I have been suicidal for the, my first suicide attempt. I was seven when we first moved here. Um, my grandfather committed suicide. I'm very, you know, I know a lot of people that have struggled with it. Uh, I still struggle with it myself. Uh And um, so, you know, it's about learning what those forms of healthy expression are for you Mm -hmm. and putting, you know, your 100% behind them and really, you know, learning how to believe in yourself and how to believe in your work and and how to believe in, in your art. And in that way, I also believe you begin to believe in your life because your art is your life. It is your expression. It is what you bring to the world. And, you know, it's, um, it's something that you say, this is what I live for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good thing. It's a really good thing to live for. And it's, and for those people who create art that they are willing to share, you also get that, that you're saying what you're doing is so important to me. What you're saying is stuff that I know and I don't talk about, and you are brave and talking about it. And that gives me hope, you know, I mean, it's like that, that thing that happens for people experiencing art is so, so huge. It's, it makes me think in here in, in Lawrence, um, one of our high schools in particular, Free State High School, has had a very um, hardworking, competitive slam team since they've um, started doing that. And I remember sitting with a, a set of the young women who were part of that. At, at, I've done shows with them a couple of times. And, and these, these people who are like 15 years old, 16 years old, none of them were even seniors in high school you know, who are writing this amazing poetry. And then they had already had the experience of having other people who heard them on stage in competition or wherever saying to them, you are saying things that I need to say. I'm, thank you, thank you, you know? And I'm thinking, man, at 15 as an artist, already getting that feedback, how cool is that? And shows how needed it is. It's very exciting. I think it's absolutely integral to our community um, anywhere that you live, that you support the youth a hundred percent with everything that you have when they're doing creative endeavors like that, whether it's a, uh, you know, a uh, drill team, whether it's poetry, whether it's theater, whether it's music, whether it's art, the way that we're going to save the world is through our children and by encouraging them and by teaching them how to, um, how to express themselves in healthy ways and how to create change through their words. Yes. And I, I am fascinated by a conversation and just looked at the clock and said, Oh, wow. We need to hear some poetry from you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I would love to read you some. Um, I'm going to read to you from my first book and my first book is called If You See My Ghost Like I Do, and it was put out uh, July 2016 by Spartan Press here in Kansas City. Uh-huh. Uh, it was part of the uh, pop poetry series that Jeanette Powers and Jason Reberg and Willie Thimmel had a big part in uh, bringing that to life. And they published several dozen poets that were all amazing, mm-hmm. and I was just really glad a to book, be a part of that. A book a month, which is an amazing thing that they did. I, I still have no idea how they are all still alive. Basically, <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, they must have had IVs of coffee and just um, elves that fed them. I, I have no idea. <laughs> 
Yeah, I I once made a to-do list and and posted a picture of it like, oh my gosh, look how busy I am. And then Jeanette posted a picture of hers and I was like, well, I'm ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, um, but anyway, the, the poem, I'll go ahead and do it. You might say that I tend to watch my back hypervigilantly, but if you were to say that, it would mean you knew absolutely nothing about how to grow orchids in shady groves. You could stand and critique, pointing fingers at shy buds who wither without sun, deprived of a holy kiss of human lips upon its head. You forget, I tended you so carefully, coaxing seedlings to germinate to grow a flock of bamboo. You did not spring from Zeus's temple like some fallen goddess. You were held up on stilts, a gilded parapet. And now you kick your throne to pieces. You fling your crown to the floor. You wonder why I keep watch when you destroy the things I cut pieces from my heart to make you. Wow. And when, I, I know you said this was from the Pop Poetry series, but when did this book come together? Uh, this was uh, July 2016 is when this one came out. And I'm thinking you you would have done performing, being featured around that time, and you already are on your third book coming out soon. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, at this pace, I'm doing a book a year, which I'm absolutely fine with. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, there's a part of me that says, well, how about a book, a poem from your second book? Yeah, absolutely. We can we can go ahead and dive into the second book. Um, just to kind of preface the second book, it's called Striking the Black Snake, Poems from Standing Rock, um, uh, earlier last year and uh, late 2016, I went to um, the Ochedi Shakoen Ochedi Oyate camp up at Standing Rock, uh, North Dakota, uh, for the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, debacle that's happening there. Um, and so um, being about half Native, I, I felt like it was my duty to go there um, to protect the water and to stand up for our treaty rights, which uh, the United States has made about 5,000 treaties with indigenous people and has broken every single one. Um, but the second time that I went up to Standing Rock, it was uh, mostly to do cleanup, but I was also privileged to be at the unofficial UN hearing for uh, human rights violations uh, that was attended by the um, leader of the uh, small group, or yeah, the small group for uh, corporations and indigenous people. Um, and the the things that I experienced there, the things that I heard there just throughout my entire time at the camp, um, just completely reinforced everything that I've been doing, uh, basically. So. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time I went, I actually arrived on January 20th. So while uh, 45 was being sworn into office, I was patting down the snow at my camp and setting up my tent uh, and getting ready to hunker down in the negative 20 below degree weather uh, in North Dakota. Um, so I wrote this poem. It's called State of Being. I remember when fascist used to be a terrible word. It conjured up images of European dictators making both bread lines and trains run on time. Now a thief sits in office, signing away people's lives, bulldozing the black snake's path, his ink the oil that becomes our blood. I never dreamed I'd wake up with the thought, I am living in a fascist state. But we have entered a state of dictatorship where having the wrong color of skin will land you on the wrong side of the border in a fistfight, brutalized by police, put in dog kennels instead of jail cells, six feet under if they bother to bury you. You will be rebranded terrorist. So if we are in a state of dictatorship, of fascism, then let me declare my status. I am an enemy of the state. I am not of your kind, the kind that seeks to denigrate those made of this American quilt who have given life and limb for this land. I will not for one moment be mistaken as someone who is limp, apathetic, or aloof at the state of this disunion. I stand as a sequoia giant towering against golden toilets and eating diamonds for breakfast, while Durner Fuhrer dooms children with cancer to painful and preventable death. 
So may that make me a target for your foolish administration. I proudly wear red and white circles on my back. If it means that I am never associated with going along with your nuclear suicidal tendencies, promise I won't be hard to find. I will shadow your steps, clipping the back of your heels, never for one second letting you forget how hot my breath feels on the back of your neck. Yes. I feel naive in saying I never anticipated that election result and even that campaign. It, it's all uh, it's all been very hard to believe. Um, I also think that I myself was pretty naive in thinking that this would never happen. Um, when I got closer to the election and it was really obvious they were going to run Hillary instead of uh, Bernie Sanders, that's when I kind of started to come to grips with the fact that it was most likely going to be a Trump presidency. And the only hope that I had for a a Trump presidency would be for the people to rise up and fight back and for um, more women of color and um, more trans people and more non-binary people and, and other marginalized people to start running for office, to start uh, representing ourselves, to start putting our own images out so that people who are younger than us will know that, yes, you can be exactly who you are and create change and live a happy life in this world. Yeah. And, you know, it's especially important for me um, since uh, Native youth are, um, as I'm sure you're aware, the uh, highest uh, suicide rates among any race in the United States. Um, And it's a problem that plagues um, our people that, you know, we are forced into, you know, this world that doesn't understand us, doesn't want us to be alive, uh, that poisons us, that takes away our culture, takes away our language, takes away our land. and you know, I, in doing what I do, I hope that, that somewhere, you know, somebody can, can take that and, you know, realize how much power is within themselves and how much they don't even realize is within themselves mm-hmm. and to take that chance and to go and, and try and explore that within themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Lawrence, we have the really vivid reminder because we have what's now Haskell Indian Nations University here, and people come from all over the country to get education here. Um, And it started as a boarding school. And one of the things on the campus is this child's cemetery, some cemetery of, of children who died here. And, you know, when you see those headstones and children, babies, as well as teenagers, and and learn that this boarding school was basically to white up these youth, take them away from their families and cultures, you know, and how horrible that is. And somehow, I'm not going to say the administration of Haskell or BIA has ever been perfect, but the, the education and things went on the campus. Native leaders there makes it a place that helps people learn about their culture at times when maybe they didn't have that previously, supports them in those varieties. Uh, When I say their culture, I'm very cognizant that that's different for different people. It's not like there's a Native culture, you know? and At all, yeah. Yeah, and and people get this access to education. I'm not saying it's easy for somebody to come across the country to this, you know, medium-sized town that is um, also the home of a major state university and very white. Um, But there are really good things that happen at Haskell. Um, And so that, that transition of boarding school change these people to embrace who our students and faculty and staff are is a beautiful thing that that's that's where it is now yeah yeah absolutely i mean the um the legacy of the boarding schools is something that uh has haunted uh the native people forever i mean my grandmother went to one um we only have uh pretty much beating is our last uh 
thing that we pass down through our family, uh, which I've been, you know, practicing and learning how to do so that that tradition stays alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when you look at intergenerational trauma, you're, you know, the kids at those schools were tortured and they were abused. They were mm-hmm. raped. They were killed. Um, they were left to die without medication. They were, you know, beaten for speaking their language. They were, you know, beaten for touching each other or trying to, you know, sit with their siblings. Uh, one of the worst photographs I've ever seen in my life is uh, when they took a bunch of Lakota children to a boarding school and the parents all set up uh, TPs outside of the boarding school as close as they would let them uh, so that they could just be as physically close as they could to their children. Uh-huh. Um, and people don't realize that that um, occurred well into the 19th century and, or into the 20th century, excuse me. Yeah. And it's something that, um, you know, you look at alcoholism rates, you look at suicide rates, you, you know, you look at that trauma, you look at um, how it's changed our DNA. Native people have terrible liver problems, myself being one of them. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that comes from hundreds of years of, living in fear, living in fear for your life, for your home, for your family, um, you know, and that, that affects, um, that affects us in ways that I don't think that we fully understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's something that the normal American doesn't think about because you're like, what do you mean you, people come to your house and take your children and send them to yeah. boarding school and teach them a foreign language? Like yeah. that, that's a completely nonsensical, um, you know, ideation for most Americans, but, you know, for, for native people, it's been the reality um, pretty much ever since the Europeans first made contact here. And, and as you talk about that, my, my brain also drifts back to your saying that as, you know, a, a child in school, you were already so interested in learning about the Holocaust. And I was initially thinking, well, from what you said, that's not about your people directly, but you know, as you've just reminded us, it's very similar to the experience of Native people. It's it's different, but there's a lot of parallel. Yeah, I mean, um, well, the the European Holocaust claimed about you know, uh, depending on figures, just about you know six million Jewish people and um, several million people, and uh, you know, you look at the um, Native American Holocaust and it's a hundred million people uh-huh. that have been killed in various ways through, um, you know, smallpox infested blankets through, uh, you know, uh, scalp bounties through just straight up massacre. Uh, Abraham Lincoln ordered 38, uh, Lakota warriors to be, uh, publicly hung in Mankato. And it's, um, I'm sorry, in Mandan. And, you know, um, it's just horrific what has yes. occurred um, to us here and what continues to occur at Standing Rock. They poisoned us with industrial chemicals yeah, uh, that they sprayed from crop dusters. And, you know, people have died from that since, you know, um, I'm terrified because I already have a bad liver and it's like, uh-huh. how much of that was in the snow that I washed my pan in? Uh-huh. So um, it's uh people don't realize how incredibly scary the government is and how far and um, to how many lengths they are willing to go to, to protect corporate interests over Mm -hmm. the lives and livelihoods of people. Yeah. I think unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately people are learning that now under this current administration, people who are seeing what the priorities really are in a much, much more blatant way than some of us have been exposed to before. So as we're talking about this and it's horrifying and it's sad and it's an important reason that there needs to be so much activism and support for activism to make change, like you're saying, to have people of all types, people, you know, diversity in our elected officials from local communities to the top, you know, different people represented in in that way that, you know, the the presidential portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama um, got highlighted as Michelle in particular talking about wanting little black kids, 
black girls in particular to see they too can aspire and accomplish, you know? There's so much going on. And for me, um, part of it becomes how, how painful it is and how it's important to replenish. And, and I think of, it comes to my mind as I say that, um, a, a poet activist, Audre Lorde, who has a quote, I won't probably get it exactly right, but it basically is that self-care is a political action. You know, it's, it's something we have to do. Um, and I want to ask, you know, how does your art fit into you not only motivating other people, bringing things to people's attention, but also taking care of you? How, how does your poetry work in that duality? of, you know, helping you have the energy to get up each day and do things as well as inspiring other people? Well, I, I personally believe that self-love is the greatest revolution that a person can participate in. Um, there are so many ways that we are told not to love ourselves through media, through advertising, through um social trends through now the internet, you know, um, there's a bajillion ways to feel insecure. So, um, I feel like that's a tool that keeps us kind of quiet and out of the way. So, you know, personally, like I, I try not to buy into that as much as I possibly can. Um, mm -hmm. and I try to create art that is the exact opposite of that. Um, my poetry, I feel like is, pretty graphic and uh violent um not so much like physically violent but it, um you know like in the state of being poem i'm very very clear on what my stance is um and so writing my poetry is a way to celebrate those feelings that i have as a human being because as a human being we're not ever going to be a hundred percent happy or um, you know, 100% joyful or motivated or, um, you know, or angry or sad or upset. We are never going to be in a constant state of feeling. So for me, it helps to acknowledge that feeling, to, um, to record its presence in my life, to process it, and then to let it go. Um, so, you know, there's some poetry that doesn't ever really see the light of day and doesn't get read in public or on um, podcasts. But, you know, um, I am, my poetry is very, very honest because as a person, I try to be as honest as possible, um, whether or not it's something somebody wants to hear or not, um, which doesn't make me very popular at fancy dinner parties, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, you know, it will definitely let me know like who can handle the truth and, and who can't. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I, it's definitely a form, as I said, of therapy for me. Um, fortunately, other people have identified with it, have um, told me that they feel the same way um, or that, you know, some of my poetry has maybe helped them or inspired them in some way. Um, but my poetry, like my life, is kind of out loud. It's, um, I, I just want to live authentically as possible for however many years I have left with this you know, bum liver of mine. So, mm. and a, a country that obviously is not going to fund me to get a transplant. So, um, you know, that's just what I, I have left to deal with. It's just when you're faced with death, it's just you and, you know, the void. So when you see that void, all of a sudden, all that, the petty things are just what, you know, you recognize them as being petty things and you, you learn to move on from it. Um, so, in a way that during your death experience of mine um, certainly has shaped the rest of my life because I, I told myself I'm going to do things that terrify me. Uh. And, you know, I, uh, as a very naturally shy and sort of withdrawn person, um, for instance, this interview is terrifying to me uh, or, you know, going onto the stage is terrifying to me. Publishing a book is terrifying. Um, uh -huh. I was in a documentary for HBO and that was terrifying, um, mm -hmm. but I made myself do it and it's been incredibly rewarding. That's wonderful. 
And speaking of rewarding, I, I want to recognize your art and that you have recently been awarded for your art. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have been really honored to receive an inspiration grant from Arts KC, uh, the Regional Arts Council here in Kansas City. And it's a grant to write my third book, uh, which is going to be entitled Tiny Bits of Flesh. And it's uh, a completely different route from my first two books. This is going to be a book of micro poetry. Um, so micro poetry is a really, really short, usually one to three sentence poems um, that I I think are really important for people to uh, read right now because we have this social media kind of mindset of, you know, 140 characters, Facebook <laughs> status, you know? Uh -huh. um, but I, I found that condensing poetry into that kind of micro form, uh, people do pay more attention to it. Uh -huh. And they are able to sort of receive um, complex ideas in a very small amount of uh, of given information. Yeah. So yeah. the the trick is to try and, and pack as much <laughs> information into those one or two or three lines that that you put out. So um, the reason uh, that I'm doing this is because I think it's a, a great way for people to get started in poetry. It's a great way for people to um, especially as youth who maybe don't have that attention span that, you know, you eventually grow into, you know, it's something they can write quickly, read quickly, share quickly. Um, it's something that's perfect to put on a t-shirt or on um, a button or, um, you know, on social media. And it's just a, another way to have a poet uh, put more of their art out there in sort of like, you know, manageable bites for the public to be like, okay, so maybe this poetry thing isn't so, like, you know, long and dense and heavy like I thought. Because <laughs> that's usually what turns people off the poetry. They're like, oh, God, you know, it takes forever, and, you know, everybody's crying, and it's like, you know, poetry is actually really accessible. Uh, we just kind of need to make that gateway drug, uh, so to speak. <laughs> so um, so I'm really or really excited to be uh, developing this with our Casey. So. Cool. Do you – are you – are you open to sharing something of that micro poetry? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so one of my favorites is um, put down your weapons, pick up your tools. Ah. So, you know, that's, as I said, you know, it's very short, but it's, you know, it in, I think it invokes a, a spirit of, of, you know, being pensive about what you're doing. Uh-huh. So, um, and then I wish I had more on my fingertips, but I did not even, yeah, uh, that would be the only one that I can recall by memory, to be honest with you. <laughs> Is, have you been writing some micro poetry for a while in terms of, that's not what's in your other two books, but I mean, is that something that is in this time, something you thought? this is a tool, a poetry form that I need to use or has it all had it previous to, you know, the, the last election, et cetera, been something that you were writing? Um, well, I, micro poetry was something I kind of started writing um, when the election happened. Uh -huh. I decided that um, when I came back from Standing Rock that I basically was going to produce more art than ever before to uh, sort of combat all of the terrible things that were happening. Um, uh -huh. And so I made the hashtag art uprising and that actually turned into um, an anthology mm -hmm. uh, that was edited by myself, Jeanette Powers and Jen Harris, who's also another great. Um, Love Jen Harris. Yeah. You know, Jen Harris. Yeah, <laughs> I think she's, she's coming, uh, coming home from Denver. Yep. Yeah. So I'm excited to have Jen back in our city. Um, yeah. She's amazing. And uh, so we called it uh, Desolate Country, and um, it was a collection of poems from writers all over the Kansas City area, some who had never been published before, some who are like, you know, kind of our Kansas City household poetry names. And it was a really great collection that um, we put out only on the internet, um, and we only, we made it $5 so that everybody could get one. And 
uh, donated all of our proceeds to Planned Parenthood. So uh, that's still available if you would like to go check it out on Amazon. Um, it is called Desolate Country. So that was um, that was where the micro poetry thing kind of got born, and also where um, you know the whole art uprising thing came from. So. Uh huh. Nice. My my um, the the hashtag that I probably use the most in terms of things with the show and with a couple of events that I do is you know that that e either words save lives, which I truly believe, or art saves lives because I I believe the same about other kinds of art and I and I love you know kind of bringing that to people's attention that this is powerful it's not a luxury it's not just entertainment this is really important and it's it's very serious matter. stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. very serious so I was stuff. thinking about that when you mentioned micro poetry because I think one of the one of the one of the things that that uh, is it makes me laugh and it astounds me at the same time is when someone who does not create art views a piece of art or views or hears um, a poem or such and says, well, I could do that and thinks that it's this easy thing that takes no practice and not a lot of thought. And it's like, that is so wrong, <laughs> <insulting>, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I, I really like it when people like that come to the arts bar, like, oh, I could do that. And I'm like, well, the stage is open, <laughs> so feel free. And um, they, they tend not to take me up on that offer. Um, <laughs> You know, um, I actually once had someone challenge me to do a stand-up comedy because uh, I was, you know, there's kind of a comics versus poets ongoing friendly yeah. feud at the arts bar. Yeah. Um, and so they were like, well, if you're going to bartend on comedy now, you have to do stand-up comedy. And so I, I got up and uh, and told a story that horrified them all and was never asked to do it again. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I considered that a success. <laughs> <laughs> and funnily enough, I am now doing stand-up comedy. So um, oh, the, wow. there's always a, you know, there's just endless ways to express yourself. And I apparently am going to try all of them. So <laughs> Very good. Very good. And speaking of, of you performing, um, I know that one of the, the times that you're going to be at the mic is on March 22nd at the Uptown Arts Bar um, as one of the Kansas City poets who is welcoming Buddy Wakefield to perform that night. And and I and I know that's an event that people are excited about. I'm wondering if there are some other times that people go, I wanna I wanna hear this NG Salazar person. Um, any other times coming up soon that, that people might want to know about? Well, we um we just started doing, I am part of a group that's called Brown Voices, Brown Pulse, and uh, we formed after the Orlando Massacre um, at the Pulse Nightclub, uh -huh. um, because we felt as, as Latinos and as Indigenous people, um, our voices are not heard a whole lot um, in mainstream, and so we uh, organized a vigil, we did a couple of readings, and then uh, just last month, uh, we kind of rejuvenated ourselves, and uh, we are doing a series called uh, Resistencia, um, which is resilience in Spanish. And um, we are, um, last time we had a great crew of uh, Jessica Ayala, Alex Martinez, Lucky Garcia, um, Prim One, Keith Bohannon came by, uh, uh, Miguel Morales. Um, and so we just had a wonderful event, and uh, we're going to do that again, hopefully, in April at the Uptown Arts Bar. So just keep a lookout for the Resistencia reading series. All right. When you mentioned Pulse, and, and even though you had, in writing, uh, told me that you were founding member of Brown Vo Voices, Brown Pulse, I didn't make that connection, um, which is... I'm going to say gives me um, 
pause in a lot of ways. Um, lots, lots of emotion there. And I want to, again, give a shout out to Annette Billings, who has this heart-wrenching poem that she shared last night that is a poem written from the perspective of a loving mom. I'm going to cry. Um, a loving mom. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Young son getting ready to go out for his night at Pulse and then him dying, you know? Oh, wow. Well, yeah. And and that can get you like nobody else can. Yeah. Be real. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And that's. Yeah, she's such a wise voice, you know? <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. She's. She's all heart. I, I know this. I can't remember when it happened, but somebody, she she posted something about a reading that she had done and somebody had referred to her as the supermodel of love. And it's like, it's true. And <laughs> that is the, the perfect description for <laughs> Billings. Absolutely. I don't think anyone could come up with a better one. <laughs> and and, and that speaks to me to the power of poetry, you know, the you know, we don't, we don't want to forget. We want to remember, we want to be inspired to do things, not just to know about them, but also to do things, you know, that, that benefit other people. Um, And, and poetry is one of those arts that can help us remember and, and get motivated. And I love that you said you make yourself do these things that are terrifying for you. You do that, you know, and and that's a stance we should all take. It may be scary to go up and, you know, challenge an elected official in your community for doing something that's that's really disrespectful and harmful to others. But but we need to do those things, and particularly those people like me who have light skin and can go safely and do some things that somebody else may not be able to. We need to do it, not to not to take control, not to take, you know, I don't know exactly how I want to describe that. You know, I, I want to open doors. I don't want to represent somebody who I'm not, but sometimes I can help somebody start paying attention. And I right. Well, like, I like to say, you know, we don't need allies. We need accomplices. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. So, uh, you know, because like a lot of the things that we have to do maybe aren't exactly legal. Like, you know, going up to Standing Rock was not exactly legal, but you know, I'm, I'm really proud of our rainbow warriors that came up and stood with us anyway and got arrested Mm -hmm. and were poisoned just like the rest of us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's a definite, like, you know, how dedicated are you? Like how, how much do you really believe in what you're saying? Because it's easy to share a Facebook uh, article or, you know, to say like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go down to this protest, but it's like, you know, when you encounter microaggressions and, you know, um, you know, even blatant racism in everyday life, it's like everyone's quiet. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, I really believe in, you know, we, we need accomplices. We, we don't need allies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we are just about at the end of this hour. It's amazing to me how the, this time always passes quickly. I want people to know you've been listening to MJ, MG, and I'm having trouble with my words today, MG Salazar, um, and you are in the Kansas City area as a poet and artist. And I'd love for you to say just a, a bit about your shop because you have me intrigued with with your shop being yet another safe space. So will you tell us a little bit about that too so people can find you there? Absolutely. Um, my shop is called The Scullery Maid with a K um, and it's located at 4247 Walnut Street here in Kansas City, Missouri. So it's right by the Art Institute in the Nelson, uh, which is a great little neighborhood. And um, I sell vintage clothes. I sell curiosities, uh, antiques of note. So I have things like uh, human hair pocket watch chains uh, from the Victorian era. I have um, several thousand year old uh, Egyptian ring. <laughs> um, and then I also have, you know, 1960s kids leather go-go boots in white size six. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty much we have uh, everything on the scale, anything that you can be looking for. And uh, this store is kind of a culmination of uh, my love for history and historical fashion. and 
also having a safe place for people who are, you know, trans or non-binary or, you know, don't want to deal with a normal retail situation, like come in and I got you, we'll zip you up and boom, mm-hmm. take the shoulder pads out if we need to. So, yeah. nice. <laughs> um, nice. so that's always very important to me to, to foster kind of a, like a, you know, come here and we want you to be fabulous type thing. That's so wonderful. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So multi-talents, multi-activities, and again, you are M.G. Salazar. And thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no, thank you so much for having this amazing conversation with me and, and having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. And listeners, I know that you've learned, we've challenged you, you're thinking, you're doing, get out, do those good things. Take M.G.'s example and do some that are scary but they're important. Everything's scary at first, I think. That's, I don't know, maybe that's just me. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. (laughs) Thank you all. And listeners, we want to also thank Daniel Smith, who produces the show, because that's why you get to hear it. Yay, thank you, Daniel. And so long to all, till the next talk with me.